I'm, I'm really honored to be able to present, uh, to welcome Professor Salim Mansour. Professor Mansour is an associate professor in the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Western Ontario in London, and he teaches in the Department of Political Science. He's the author of The Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism, which was published in 2011, Islam's Predicament, Perspective of a Dissident Muslim, from 2009, and he was the co-editor of a book entitled The Indira Rajiv Years, The Indian Economy and Policy from 1966 to 1991, and has published widely in academic journals such as the Jerusalem Quarterly, the Journal of South, Asian, uh, South Asia and Middle Eastern Studies, the American Journal of Islamic Social Sciences and Arab Studies Quarterly, and the Middle East Quarterly. Professor Mansour wrote, uh, wrote a weekly syndicated column for the Toronto Sun for over a decade and more, and more since the 9-11, and his Sun columns were published across Canada in newspapers owned by the Sun Media. He wrote a monthly column for the magazine uh, Western Standard and, uh, peri and periodically for the National Post. He has published uh, in the Globe and Mail, the National Review Online and Front Page Magazine, as well as PJ Media in the United States and the Canadian Observer. Professor Mansour was uh, born in Calcutta, India and moved to Canada where he completed his studies uh, receiving his doctorate of political science from the University of Toronto. And then he joined the University of Western Ontario, Western Ontario where he was a research fellow at the Canadian Institute for International Peace and Security in Ottawa. Uh, Professor Monsoor is also a senior distinguished fellow at the Gladstone Institute of New York and a member of the board of directories of the Center for Islamic Pluralism, which is located in Washington, D.C., an academic consultant with the Center for Security Policy, also based in Washington, He's a member of the advisory board for the Center of Immigration Policy Reform in Ottawa and the vice president for Muslims Facing Tomorrow, which is based in Toronto, and the vice president of Canadians Against Suicide Bombing, which is also in Toronto. Um, he's a frequent analyst and, and uh, commentator on radio and television, and he's been on PBS, the Jim, uh, PBS Jim Lehrer Hour, and participated in the Doha debates held in Qatar. Uh, which was broadcast on the BBC Forum from London. Professor Mansour was also uh, present in 2006 with the American Je uh, Jewish Congress, Stephen Weiss, uh, Profiles of Courage. So it's really uh, a great honor to welcome you here. And I think, uh, especially for dealing with issues of contemporary anti-Semitism and human rights in general, and I, I just did a tour in Europe where I said that anti-Semitism was beginning with Jews but never ends with Jews, and that it's not a parochial Jewish problem, but this is an issue of human rights um, that it seems that very few people are engaged in, and few people are engaged in this in the Islamic world, and receive very little support from us in the West, so-called Western world. Well, thank you, Excuse Professor Desmond. And I just want to say that um, Harris Rafiq, who's also a colleague, was saying that many of the so-called liberals in the Western world are sort of perceiving these, the, the Muslim community, the Muslim population in different societies as consisting of Islamists and are sort of catering to that narrative. And it's very important that I think people who are engaged in the struggle against uh, reactionary elements wherever they appear ought to be supportive. I really, in, in light of that, it's really an honor to have you here. So thank you for being here. 
Well, thank you, Professor Small. You're very kind with those words. And I'm happy to be here at your invitation. Thank you all, you know, for taking the time to come out uh, this <coughs> evening uh, for this discussion. Um, as I was getting ready to come out uh, to the campus, I was thinking about the times that we're living in, how grave and ominous these times are. But yet, <coughs> our recall <coughs> doesn't extend back too much. We are talking about people in terms of grave and ominous times, that we are somehow in the 1930s. When I talk to my students, they can hardly make out the Vietnam War. Uh, a, a, a crisis situation which consumed the life of my generation when I was in school, in high school, and getting ready to go to university. Our memory don't extend very far back. And uh, so to talk about the grave and ominous times that we're living in is itself a challenge. But my own memory, and I just want to take a couple of minutes on this matter, my own memory goes back, of course, not to the 1930s, we were not there, but some four decades ago, uh, when my generation and people of my background, myself, we went through, lived through a horrible time, and I'm a survivor of a genocide. Um, that, of course, again, have no resonance with much of the people around the world. Um, I'm referring to the uh, genocide that took place, and I don't think too many in this room would know about it, um, in what is in East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, former East Pakistan. It was the worst disaster in human rights terms, this was a calamity since the end of World War II in 1945. In a sense, it was a premonition of things that were to come. Um, the thoughts about what happened, and I, I was a teenager and I survived, but many of my friends didn't, and many of my family members didn't, <coughs> and I was lucky to get away and, and as a refugee come to Canada. <coughs> Uh, but the thoughts about that period in time which I lived through and I saw for myself uh, has a special resonance in the time that we're speaking right now, the condition that we're speaking right now. Um, this week, or this past week, we've all been concerned about the developments that have taken place with the Geneva uh, Agreement that has been signed by uh, the P5 plus one negotiated by the Obama administration and Iran. And so my thoughts go back to the late 1960s and early 1970s and in the midst of this genocide, President Nixon and his administration shrugged their shoulder. President Nixon basically shrugged his shoulder. He couldn't care less of what was happening in Pakistan, in South Asia, and to what extent his own administration was contributing 
to what became a genocide. Uh, he was totally dismissive of it. And now there's a book out that, that, that should be on the reading list of most people who are concerned about these things. It's Gary Bass's book. Gary Bass is professor at Princeton. His book um, is called The Blood Telegram, uh, Nixon, Kissinger, and the Forgotten mm -hmm. Genocide. The dimension was, we have all now become so, you know, blasé about it, immune to it, you know, because so much we have seen. But in East Pakistan, over three million people were killed in a very short period of time. And 10 million were refugees, and that led to a war between India and Pakistan. And President Nixon basically shrugged his shoulder. And Gary Bass, in this book, Blood Telegram, now with the archives open, goes into and shows exactly what, what was happening in the White House and in the administration. And, and reading that, and seeing what is happening right now, I would submit to you, Obama is the Nixon of our time. He had basically shrugged his shoulder. He couldn't care less of what happens with, as he negotiated this deal. He couldn't care less about the consequences, or the unintended consequences. And so I am walking around with this image in my mind. Obama is now a great progressive. He is the left version of Nixon of our time. And maybe I should write a Gatestone piece about this as I was thinking, waiting to come out of there. Anyhow, those are the preliminary remarks I wanted to share with you. Professor Small asked me to uh, sort of prepare and present a paper. I believe he's putting together a book on this subject about anti-Semitism. I mean, a lot of different dimension to it. And he asked me to talk about Muslim and Arab anti-Semitism. And so, in response to Professor Small's request, I did prepare a paper. But I don't think I will indulge and read all of it because it might be quite taxing. But let me share with you some of what I uh, have in my mind about Muslim and Arab anti-Semitism. Um, the challenge for Muslims is immense, but I think the vast majority of non-Muslim, apart from Muslim themselves, Jews and Christians, and secular people have very little idea of what is the internal debate within Islam and what is the level of conflict within Islam. And anti-Semitism doesn't stop with Israel, it consumes others. The internal discord and internal violence within Islam also doesn't stop with Islam in the Muslim world. It has a profound spillover effect, and I think we are witnessing that since 9-11. If people had not paid attention to the Muslim world, except for specific interests, of course, Jews, <coughs> both in Israel and outside of Israel, are preoccupied with the survival of Israel, the pressures that Israel is under. And, and look at the issue from that perspective. The non-Muslims and the Christians have not made much attention to it, you know. Uh, and yet, within Islam, there is a massive debate. And those of us who oppose what today in, in public is called Islamism, 
and the Islamists, that is Islamism, uh, those who have turned the religion into a political ideology. Um, and therefore, politics has taken on the main dimension of a religion. Those of us who oppose that, ironically, we are faced with multiple challenges. We have not only faced with the immense challenge of the Muslim world uh, and the forces therein which is buttressed by, supported by, funded by the governments of the Muslim world. There is, um, if you talk about uh, the Muslim world in terms of state power and, and, and government, there are 57 uh, states that uh, um, member state of the United Nations. It makes up one huge block inside the UN. Um, almost, you know, 40% of the UN. Uh, this is the organization of Islamic cooperation. Uh, so we are, we are confronted with that. That is the official Islam, quote unquote, that is backed and sanctified and, 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 and propagated and defended by the institutions of the Muslim country and, and the government. We are then confronted with the horrendous problem of the Western powers, and we can leave aside the, the non-Western powers, you know, the former countries of Eastern Europe or Soviet Union aside, or third world countries aside, but the Western powers, the NATO countries, uh, led by the United States, Britain, France, uh, that is in so many different ways uh, beholden to, connected with, penetrated by, supportive of the Muslim countries, predominantly or most primarily the Arab states uh, of the Muslim world. And consequently, we have no access or we cannot, that is the voice of the Muslims who are opposed to Islam, Islamism, opposed to what is happening uh, from any support from uh, the governments in the West. Then we have the problem of the academia and the media. The academia in the Western world is, I've written a book about this, um, The Delectable Lie. It's not about the academia, but it is within that context, is mostly tilted towards the left. And as it is tilted towards the left, it sees the Muslim world, the Arab Muslim world, the Islamic world, as the classic victim of Western imperialism, Western colonialism. And the sympathies of the academia predominantly is what used to be called at one time the third world. It might still be called the third world, but the developing countries and just about the entire Arab Muslim world can be defined as developing countries. And so the academia is on that side. Plus the academia sees the conflict, at least since 9-11, as a conflict that has been instigated by the Western power. That is, if you go back by Chomsky's argument and the argument of others, this was a blowback to the Western powers of what they had been engaged in in the Muslim world for 
much of the 20th century, but one can go back, you know, a couple of hundred years. Uh, that is European colonialism. Then we have the media, and the mainstream media, again, is slanted towards the left, and is intimidated, and will not explore or analyze or present the internal struggle within the world of Islam. As if the world of Islam, both from the academic perspective and the media perspective, is a monolith. It is homogeneous. That one point seven billion people basically respond as if as automated to the call of Islam, however it is defined. Instead of there's a vast diversity and a vast range of not only public opinion and concern, but coming back to the central issue that is the evening discussion about Islam and what do we mean by Islam, and particularly what do we mean by Islam is place in the modern world, its culture in the modern world, and how are the Muslims, this almost two billion people and growing, are going to face the challenge of the modern world, the 21st century that we are now in, uh, that this debate cuts right through the issue of how Muslims are to understand the sacred texts, how are they to understand their history, both history in the sense of sacred history, that is the history of the Prophet and his, his time, and then the subsequent history, the classical history of the expansion of Islam, the growth of development of Islam, and then what today I might say we are living through is the collapse of the Islamic civilization, the complete internal implosion of the Islamic civilization, of which the violence that we see is not something that comes from Islam, but it comes from the collapse of Islam. It is symptomatic of the decay or this internal destruction of Islam. As I said in my opening remarks, that I am a survivor of the genocide. It was a complete intellectual, moral, economic, political collapse of Pakistan that resulted in the genocide. And that was not a singular affair. Since then we have seen elsewhere, we have seen for instance Darfur, Sudan, the Darfur crisis was also in six and seven figures. We have seen, and I have family members in this, I don't want to talk in family terms, but we, you know, we are connected, those of us Muslim, we have, we have co connection with parts of the Muslim world. So North Africa, Algeria in the 1990s collapsed and it hasn't recovered. Uh, there was an implosion of the regime and a violence of the sort uh, that pitted Algerians against Algerians. And the figures are in the range of half a million or more and nobody knows exactly what to cap it with. But Algeria was not alone. Afghanistan, you see what's happening in Syria, and so on and so forth. So there's been an internal collapse. And so there's a, 
there is a, a, a struggle within the Muslim world of how do we confront this existential reality. And many of us are writing and thinking and talking. But, as I have said, noted a little while ago, the voices of the dissident Muslim, the voices of the Muslims who are confronting this issue and want to move forward and take the civilization with it. It is not about abusing Islam. It is about salvaging our sacred history of God's word. And how do we do that? Because salvaging it is also of profound consequences of Muslim relationship with the non-Muslim world. Uh, when, when, when we look at the Muslim world, and particularly from the Western perspective, as we sit here in North America or in some point in, in Europe, we are preoccupied with the Muslim world, which is Middle Eastern. But I must remind you that the Middle East is a fraction of the Muslim world. The largest concentration of Muslims in the world is in South Asia, where the numbers are close to half a billion. And you don't hear about that discussion. The largest Muslim country is not in the Middle East. It's far away from the Middle East. It's in Indonesia, over 230 million people. You don't hear about them. The second largest Muslim country is not again in the Middle East, or it's not officially a Muslim country. It is India. Again, nobody hears and talks about that, you see. Uh, and the relationship, therefore, of Muslims, which is from the Western perspective preoccupied with, which is very natural and, 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 and very important, with, with the question of what we have faced here today, that is Arab and Muslim anti-Semitism, that is the issue of the Arab and Muslim world's conflict with Israel. But I will submit to you, without taking away any of that importance, that the struggle inside the Muslim world is far bigger than what is vis-a-vis Arab-Israeli conflict. And indeed, one might say that it is in the salvaging of Islam, that is in the reform and transformation of Islam, that is the struggle that we are engaged in, that the Arab-Israeli peace can eventually be worked out if it is not going to collapse into some sort of a, uh, a horror that we can see the way things are evolving. So it is from that perspective I, I want to again share with you, you know, the, the, the Arab Islamic anti-Semitism, the question is, both from the point of view of non-Muslims, Jews, Christians and other scholars, and from the point of Muslim, the moot question in discussing Arab and Muslim anti-Semitism is, to what extent this is traceable to the Quran? and the Prophet. And to what extent this is a modern phenomenon that is imported from the West and also it reflects in the modern times a civilizational crisis of the Muslim world. My view is 
that predominantly Arab and Muslim anti-Semitism is a modern phenomenon. But scholars have pointed out that the seeds of modern anti-Semitism in the Muslim world can be traced back to the Quran and the Prophet. I take issue with that and, and that's what the bulk of my paper is. And the little bit of time that I have, it is in depth, one has to do what is called the reading of the Quran and the hermeneutics of the Quran uh, and the references to those uh, verses in the Quran that the uh, hate mongers among Muslims regularly uh, hurl at Jews. The most famous, of course, the one that is regularly cited is sons of pigs and apes, you know, and that has been broadcast time and time again. Or the references to the Quran that there was conflict between the Jews of Arabia or pockets of Jews in Arabia and, and the Prophet which are alluded to in the Quran. And therefore the, the argument is made that uh, this, is the, this is the Arab and Muslim anti-Semites or hate mongers making the argument that uh, the Jews are the enemies of God, of Allah. And it is for Muslims to remain engaged in the war against Jews till the end of time. And that's the reading that comes out over and over and over again by the leading clerics in the Muslim world, people like the famous Al Jazeera cleric, uh, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, but lives in Qatar, um, Sheikh Yusuf al Kardawi or the clerics of Al-Azhar University in Cairo, or the Iran clerics among the Iranians, the Iranian cleric, clerics starting all the way from Khomeini to the people who have succeeded him, and the various other Islamist and fundamentalist organizations in the Muslim world, like the Jamaat-e-Islami, and their various offshoots. They keep hurling these references from the Quran as the basis of the Muslim war against the Jews and the necessity of waging this war against the Jews. My point is that, let me, let me uh, find the particular passage if I can, uh, that if the argument that the Muslim uh, hate mongers themselves perpetrate, that the Quran sanctions and legitimates violence against Jews, war against Jews, jihad, that's the, that's the Arabic term, jihad against Jews, which is what Hamas, various Palestinian organizations, the Muslim Brotherhood and others have been preaching for most of the 20th century, going all the way back to the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj Amin, 
and his relationship with Hitler and so on, and therefore leaning back to the reading of the Quran to defend those positions. My argument, or argument of people like me, is that if these people argue that all of this is sanctioned by the Quran on the basis of those fragmentary verses, then the logic inevitably follows <coughs> that just as a few drops of lemon in a bowl of milk curdles the milk and destroys the milk, these references in the Quran would destroy the Quran. And the Quran then, and Islam then, is not the religion of mercy, it is a falsehood. That's the challenge that these people have to answer. Muslims like myself will recoil with that argument. I recoil at the thought that what Yusuf al-Kardavi says, the logic of Yusuf al-Kardavi's argument, inevitably leads to the complete undermining of the Quran, which Muslims believe is the word of God. And consequently, this, this discussion remains cut off within the Muslim world because our voices cannot reach them. We don't have the pulpit. We don't have the media. We don't have the institutional forces that can challenge these imams who stake their grounds on such a logic that is unsustainable by the very premise of their argument that the Quran is the word of God. That God can be, in that sense, vindictive rather than the word of God is a lesson, a meta-history, not history, but a meta-history. Okay. So, <clears throat> it is from that perspective that I have done, and this paper is actually a part of a book that I'm working on, uh, and hopefully this paper will come out with uh, Professor Small, and those of you who are interested might pick it up, that I've analyzed uh, the, the uh, various verses that is regularly used. Okay. But to backtrack a little bit and to flesh out a little context of history, let me read a portion of my paper to you. Islam is not a new religion that sprouts in the barren soil of Arabia. It is instead the primordial faith in God of man, as narrated in the Hebrew Bible, and renewed and restated at an inflection of history that proves to be immensely fertile, that is, the time of the Prophet. And it seizes the imagination and devotion of a people and propels them forward, bearing the new message of monotheism. The manner in which events unfolded was so remarkable that the shockwave from that moment in time, in the early decades of the 7th century, still resonates with us. In Moses and Monotheism, it is the last book that Sigmund Freud published in 1939. He refers to Judaism as a religion of father and Christianity as a son religion. 
father religion and son religion. I find Freud's description very compelling and insightful in situating Islam as a return to the father religion, to the restatement of strict or absolutely uncompromising monotheism into which Judaism had evolved from its origin in some form of henotheism under the guidance of Moses and which became somewhat diluted in Christianity due to the Greek-Roman influence. Now this is of course the perspective of theologians who will fight and argue. Okay? But, but these are again historical perspectives. Now Freud was, a, was an atheist all his life but he was deeply deeply moved and was part of the tradition of, to which he belonged, that is, the Jewish culture and Jewish history. And in the one reference in this book, Moses and Monotheism, Freud makes to Islam is as follows. The founding of the Mohammedan religion seems to me to be an abbreviated repetition of the Jewish one, in imitation of which it made its appearance. There is reason to believe that the Prophet originally intended to accept the Jewish religion in full for himself and his people. The regaining of the one great primeval father produced in the Arabs an extraordinary advance in self-confidence which led them to great worldly success, but which, it is true, exhausted itself in these. Now Freud was not a scholar of Islam, but the time that he was living in, he must have heard or might have come across some of the great scholars of 19th century Islam and Muslim history who were Jews. Among them was Rabbi Abraham Geiger or Ignaz Goldsier, who is considered to be the greatest Orientalist, despite what Edward Said has to say about Orientalism the greatest orientalist ever. Now, Abraham Giger, mind you, this is long before the terrible events of the 20th century that have colored our understanding. Rabbi Giger wrote a book whose English title is, What Did Muhammad Take from Judaism? And in it, in it he argued that Muhammad in his Quran has borrowed much from Judaism as it presented itself to him in his time. Now this is not a strange statement <clears throat> because the Quran is filled with references to the Hebrew prophets. <clears throat> it retells their stories it retells the story in a manner that is already familiar to the people who are hearing the story. So it doesn't have to go into the narrative form that is in the Hebrew scripture. <clears throat> it's like me retelling Shakespeare's story to you, assuming that you all know Shakespeare's story. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But most importantly, in the Quran, the highly elevated place of Moses as possibly the greatest prophet. So, we might say that the Quran is very much a Jewish text. 
As much as the Jews were not merely a people of the book, a Halal Kitab in Arabic, but the first people in the Semitic tradition called upon to worship God alone. The religion of the Jews was known to the pagan Arabs. And their stories were familiar, for they had made home in Arabia for nearly a millennium before Muhammad's time. And since Jews were the most proximate people to the pagan Arabs among whom Muhammad preached the message of worshipping the God of Abraham, it was only natural that he held up the Jews as the example of a people subscribing to a monotheistic faith. From Muslim perspective, as a matter of belief, it is not what Muhammad borrowed from Judaism or Christianity, but what was revealed to him came from the same source that Jews and Christians hold as truth. There is one eternal truth revealed time and again under different circumstances to different people at different places. And what was revealed to Muhammad was that one eternal truth in the circumstance of the time and place in which his divinely ordained mission took place. Now the Quran has been described in many different ways. Here is one way that a scholar of comparative religion, a philosopher, a poet, a teacher of perennial philosophy, that is Fritz of Schwann, mentioned what the Quran represents. He wrote, the great theophany of Islam is the Quran. It presents itself as being a discernment between truth and error. Before the Quran was compiling to a text, it was the word of God that was heard by Muhammad alone. And Muhammad acted on that word of God. The Quran was compiled some 20 years later under one of his successors, the third Caliph. And that is the redacted text that we have. So remember, it was the word of God, it was a speech in the mind of Muhammad. Fazlur Rahman, an Indo-Pakistani scholar of Islam, he proposed that the Quran is both simultaneously divine speech and Muhammad's speech. For this he got into big trouble and had to run for his life. He made his home in America where he died in Chicago. But Rahman's view, his explanation as a scholar of Islam and of the Quran holds the key to explaining the situation that arises with references to Jews in the Quran. Because how to read the Quran is an immense challenge. Even though the Quran claims it is a very easy text, it is a huge challenge. And so the Quranic admonishment, be apes, despise and reject it, which the hate mongers regularly hurl at Jews comes in this following verse in the Quran. So let me read the whole verse. Verse is precisely what verse means, a segment within a surah. A surah is a chapter. So the Holy Scripture, so the, the Hebrew Scripture, 
The chapters are, for instance, the five books of Moses, the Genesis, the Deuteronomy, the Exodus, the Leviticus, the Numbers, right? And the verses would be the chapters of the, the verses within those chapters. Similarly, the Quran has chapters. There are 14 of them and verses are within chapters. And the longest and the most elaborate chapter is the chapter which goes by the name Al-Baqarah, the cow, which is a reference to the golden calf. So it is in that chapter the following verse appears. For you are well aware of those from among you who profane the Sabbath, whereupon we said unto them, Be as apes despicable, and set them up as a warning example for the time and for all time to come, as well as an admonition to all who are conscious of God. This is a rebuke to Jews who profane the Sabbath. And if you profane the Sabbath, if you go by Mosaic law, all you have to do is turn to the relevant chapter, the Exodus. It is a capital punishment, and that's what the reference is. The admonishment is figurative and cannot be read literally as Muslim hate mongers indulge in. There's the reference to the Mosaic law, as I have just mentioned, etc. But this particular verse, in Arabic we call it ayat, is preceded by the following verse. Verily, those who have attained to faith, as well as those who follow the Jewish faith, and the Christian, and the Sabian, all who believe in God in the last day and do righteous deeds, shall have the reward with their sustainer, and no fear need they have, and neither shall they grieve. I have referred to many other variations of this particular verse in the Quran, because it is filled. This verse is repeated over and over again. Now, in the commentary, and I've selected the commentary of Muhammad Asad, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Asad writes, the above passage, which recurs in the Quran several times, lays down a fundamental doctrine of Islam, with a breadth of vision unparalleled in any other religious faith. The idea of salvation is here made conditional upon three elements only. Belief in God, belief in the day of judgment, and righteous action in life. Okay. So Asa's commentary, and his commentary has been echoed in many other commentaries, Yusuf Ali, or Pictal, or Molana Muhammad Ali, etc., etc., uh, sets the tone of what is universal embedded in the particular. The particular is those particular stories and events in the life of Muhammad that begins and ends with the life of Muhammad. Because it is a part of a belief. This is the Semitic tradition. It is not simply Islam. It is part of the belief that prophetic actions are providential. 
that prophets are agents of God and they act as agents of God. They are charged with the mission to bring a certain message. And so as agents of God, their lives are unique, sui generis. It is that one instant, one moment, it cannot and will not be repeated another time. And from Muslim belief, that is on the basis of the Quran, revelation comes to an end with Muhammad, he's the last prophet. Therefore, ends with him. Lesser men, all of us are lesser men, cannot make the presumption or act with the delusion that they are providential players in history. And so when Khomeini or Karadavi or any Muslim imam start speaking and acting as if they have some sort of privilege, they are basically in direct contradiction with the message of the Quran. So the, the universal and the particular is the one of how you understand. The particular has to be understood in relationship to the events of the time. I'll just take one more example because this is the heart of the quarrel and I'll end with this, you know. It is a story about Banu Koreza. Banu Koreza was a Jewish tribe among many Jewish tribes in the city that was known as Yathrib, but the city's name was then changed to Madina, Madina to Nabi, the city of the Prophet. And the story about the, the Jews of Bani Koreza is as follows. The story about the Jews of Bani Koreza is about the collusion with the Meccans. The resistance they offered after the pagan confederates were beaten, their surrender and the punishment delivered, is referred in the Quran thus. And he brought down from their stronghold those of the followers of earlier revelation, that is the Jews of Bani Koreza, who aided the aggressors and cast terror into their hearts. Some you slew and some you made captive. Now we have to step back and analyze and put it in context. What happened? The Prophet was at war, or rather the Meccan pagans were at war with the Prophet. That's the confederacy. And Bani Quraiza's leadership chose to support the pagans. Fully knowing that if the pagan confederacy won, that would be the end of Muhammad. That would be the end of Islam. Muhammad would be dead, killed, and that would be the end of the story. But Muhammad didn't prevail. And so, the Banu Quraiza were brought to task, and they had to answer for their treason. The Quran only refers to that particular action. Subsequent Muslim historians write about that after an arbitration between the tribe of Bani Quraiza and the Prophet and his people and the arbitrator that was selected, who also happened to be a Jew himself, uh, Saad bin Muad, 
the verdict was given that the men of Manipuraja should be killed and the women and children should be put into slavery. And that's what happened. The numbers varies between 400 and 900. But the only record of Banu Quraysh comes out of the Muslim sources. The first record is written about 150 years later. There's no other references to Banu Quraysh except the Muslim sources. Two more minutes and I conclude because the Banu Quraysh issue is so important and I've spent quite a bit of time over here in my paper on this. The earliest book on, which refers to Muslims and Islam was written by an Armenian bishop by the name of Sibius, published in 661, that is barely 30 years after the Prophet died. There is no reference in that book, it's called the History of Heraclius, no mention, no reference in that book to the quarrels of Jews and Arabs. In fact, the reverse. Sibios writes about how Muhammad has been preaching to the Arabs the message of one God, the God of Abraham. How Jews have stood with the Arabs in defense of the city of Edessa against the Byzantines. And how Jews have welcomed the Arabs. Now, within a matter of less than 10 years, Jerusalem was conquered by Arab armies. And the Jews welcomed the Arab armies. Because under the Byzantine, the Jews were forbidden to enter any of the holy city. Jerusalem, Nazareth, Bethlehem, so on and so forth. So there was an immense celebration in the defeat of the Byzantine and the conquest of Jerusalem and Palestine. There's no reference to the story of Banu Quraiza. And my point is that if Banu Quraiza had been such an egregious story, then it would have reverberated in the writings of Jews and others. Sibios who wrote it. Because we know, we know the Jewish tradition of maintaining the chronicles of their own people. But there was no reference to Banu Which is not to say that Banu does not happen, but I'm talking and putting it in context. From the Muslim point of view, that is from the Quranic point of view, the, <coughs> the treatment or the judgment of Banu Quraysa raises the question, references to the judgment of Moses when he came down Mount Sinai and saw what was happening. And then he called upon his people by name, the Levites, who then were told to go and punish those who had betrayed God. And according to the book of Moses, 3,000 of those present, men, were killed. That's the reference that comes up with Bani Koreva on this issue that, that we're talking about. But to sum it all up, as I said, it is a struggle of Muhammad with the pagans within which a certain number of Jews took a position to which there were responses in the context of the time. And there is no way that a Muslim, doesn't matter who he is, 
can say that this is what Muhammad did and therefore I have the right to do it when the Quran is very clear about what is the universal message. Thank you. So, so thank you very much for an important paper and an insightful paper. And we're going to open it up for, uh, for Q&A. Does anybody have a... Any... I have a couple of comments. First of all, I appreciate the fact that you took us through history. And that's very important to understand what's happening. And if we take a little bit of different point of view, what is happening today in the history? Number one, has man or human being changed? Why am I asking the question? Because of technology. Okay, that's number one. You change completely, and how will you react? Number two, the Older's religious uh, uh, references that you made disappeared temporarily 19th, 20th century when the intellectuals uh, uh, came into being and it was the intellectuals that led, not religious uh, phenomenon that led. And, and that's a very important factor. Now, uh, are we going back to religious factors again. And that's the, the question I have. Are we going back? I mean, why did it pop up again? And uh, during the, the time of the Crusades, etc., we knew everything was religious. And you referred uh, rightly to teachers, intellectuals taking over. And that was a very positive point. Uh, teachers, intellectuals do not refer as much to religion, and they refer to other factors that that came into being, like human rights, etc. So, those are my my comments and questions about it. Uh, absolutely valid, uh, Salim. We share the name, you know. Just the, just the way we spell it, I just realized, you know, he spells it with an E in keeping with Salim the Magnificent, and I spell it with an A, keeping in reference to Jahangir. <laughs> So, uh, Salim, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't have the time and, and the references that I had made over here. Um, let me very quickly answer in the following fashion, which is again in my paper and in the larger work that I'm doing. We are in the trial, modern history we're talking about. We are in a trial. How deep the trial is, how we'll come out, that is speculated. But we are in a trial. And the opening point of the trial is the end of World War I. At the end of World War I, the Ottoman Empire was defeated and dismembered. The most important thing from my perspective, apart from the, the whole issue of the way the Arab world was divided and states were constructed, the role of the mandatory powers, and these are all political discussions and back and forth, within which there is the question of Israel, Balfour Declaration, the mandate, and so on and so forth. But from this particular perspective that I am bringing, the most important, in fact, the vital issue is the defeat of the Ottoman Empire led to ultimately the abolishment of the Khalifa under the circumstances that we know, the rise of a new Turkey as a republican state <coughs> under Mustafa Kemal and the whole surge of modernity or modernization effort, but it was the abolishment of the Khalifa. This was a 1300-year institution, irrespective of its 
performance. It's like the Vatican. It was a 1300-year institution that had been innovated. There is no basis for it in the Quran, but it was innovated in the period, from the earliest period of Islam. Uh, and the first Khalif, that Abu Bakr, from that period. And around it has emerged a whole understanding of what is an Islamic civilization and what is Islamic power. The abolishment of the Khalifa creates a void. That void has not been filled out. What was filled out politically was the constructions of states. But the void of what is an Islamic society or what is a legitimate Islamic order, Nizami Islamiyah, was never worked out. It is in that context, and this is where the convergence takes place, that those intellectuals, we can name them, Hassan al-Banna, Sayyid Qutb, Mawlana Maududi, Ayatollah Khomeini, these are the big names, and then underneath them, the whole lot of them, they came up with the idea that either we re-establish the Khalifat, we are in the 20th century now, we re-establish the Khalifat, or the approximation to that caliphate is recreate a Sharia-based state. And this is Islamism. We are in a completely new context. The question, the challenge that we were faced with, that is the Muslim civilization is faced with, how do you establish a legitimate political order that will meet the need both in the religious sense and will also be reconciled with modernity? Okay. And in that context, there's one more reference, do I have a time? There have been many voices, but the one of the most fascinating voices was of a man by the name of Mahmoud Muhammad Taha. He was a reformer, a scholar, he was from Sudan. And his writing, published later on, is called The Second Message of Islam. He was not alone, but he was one of the more prominent persons who argued about the universal and the particular. And the question is, how do you read the Quran? And he said it very beautifully. The Quran is the word of God that for Muslim mean that when he hears the word of God, as he reads it, as he interfaces with it, that is the Quran, he hears it again, he hears it anew, he hears it afresh, and it should be heard anew and afresh and not weighed down by the dead hands of the past. This raises the whole issue again, again I've alluded to it, the question of ishtihad. And what has happened in the Muslim world was with the end of the Khalifa, the question of reasoning, the question of rethinking the Quran, who has the authority, all surface in different forms, and that's what we have confronted with. Your question whether we're going back, yes, the big names want to pull it back to the pre-abolishment of the Khalifa period, that is pre-1924. That was exactly what Osama bin Laden's message was. His message was against the Crusaders and the Zionists. The reference to those who followed Osama bin Laden, and Osama bin Laden was following Sayyid Qutub, was to recreate. Every Muslim who does not support the recreation of the Khalifa is therefore an apostate. So you have an apostate sitting in front of you. 
because that's the face, that's the challenge we are faced with. And how that will be resolved? Well, that's the war that the Muslim world is going through. The question is whether others who are interested in this will act knowledgeably or will embrace the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamists, the Islamofascists and others, which I see happening, which is where my reference was to Obama as the Nixon of our time. So, so on that note, if you may, I would like to ask you a question. Could you try to unpack the processes surrounding the fact that it seems like you know, Obama, as you said, and I, I don't disagree at all, I agree with you, that Obama is sort of the Nixon of our time. And, and you mentioned the media and the, the academy. So the media and the academy is supposed to be concerned through our education about human rights and equality and strong citizenship and equality of women and religious pluralism and all this sort of thing. And yet it would appear to me there's a silencing of voices like yourself and other voices who are critical of this sort of revolution that's sweeping Islamic societies, or several Islamic societies, and people like Obama and interests are sort of kowtowing to these Islamists. Can you, ex you know, what, what is the processes involved? Why, why is this taking place, in your opinion? Again, it's a huge uh, question. Very quickly, my own thoughts and my own view about this matter, which I've tried to write about also, is there's a parallel implosion of Western civilization too. This is not something new. It happened 75 years ago, 80 years ago. The most advanced culture of the Western civilization fell into a technological barbarity, and we know what happened. I'm referring to, of course, the rise of Hitler, Mussolini and fascism. It happened in the heart of Europe. It happened to the most cult cultivated and cultured country, Germany. So what we have now seen in many ways is the loss of vitality, the loss of conviction, the loss of defending what I've written in my writing about the very core principles upon which the West emerged as a modern civilization. We can trace it back to the long struggle of enlightenment, reformation, counter-reformation, renaissance, the political revolution, the scientific revolution, the philosophical revolution. This is not a compressed period within a generation. This is a long drawn process in which the West emerged what in a shorthand term we call liberal democracy. But what do we mean by liberal democracy? It is a culture of its own. It's a civilization of its own. But then in the 20th century, this culture, this civilization, and its defenders were knocked out so badly. They were when we look at the 20th century now, it's all over. And we look back at it. I submit to you, you can look at the 20th century, the first half of it, as a huge internal tribal warfare of the modern world. It took place in Europe. The two world wars can be compressed now. It is no longer separated by 20 years. It is one event. And an entire order collapsed. An order that was built up through the 18th and the 19th century collapsed 
with World War One, and it never got put together, even as you know the ruins of '45 and the world that came together after that. So that was one huge. If I go back to Freud, I mean I, I have made a lot of allusions to Freud because I find Freud fascinating. Uh, and the question of repressed me memory and collective unconscious, you know, we have forgotten it or we deliberately want to forget it and we have repressed it. But that was a huge traumatic shock to the Western civilization. Plus came immediately, it did not end there, it came with the Cold War. One half of, again, the world of enlightenment, Europe, fell into the gulags, into Stalinism into the brutality which was no less brutal than what had happened with Hitler. Except that the left doesn't want to talk about it. For them, left, it is only Hitler. And Stalin or the Soviet Union was a great you know, example of socialism and a new man. But it was another disaster. So that second half. Within that is the long period of the Vietnam War, the decolonization, the wars in Africa, the, the Algeria uh, and so on. So the West was completely beaten up. The very survival of the West had become a matter of give or take. Imagine without Churchill we might have had a different history. Okay? So coming back to you, Obama and Obama's election or, or, or Clinton's election or even George Bush's election all of these elections are the election of an exhausted people trying to escape from history, not confront history, not understand history, to create another mythology. Isolationism is a running away from history. And so this is happening simultaneously, like two trains going in opposite direction on parallel tracks. Just as the world of Islam is re-energized by barbaric forces. I want to read to you, please. Can I? Just one paragraph. This is, this is Freud writing as he was witnessing what was happening. And he died in 1939 as he completed his book. And this is what he said. Which book? Monotheism. We must not forget that all the peoples who now excel in the practice of anti-Semitism became Christians only in relatively recent times, sometimes forced to it by bloody compulsion. One might say they're all badly Christian. Under the thin veneer of Christianity, they have remained what their ancestors were, barbarically polytheistic. They have not yet overcome their grudge against the new religion which was forced on them, and they have projected it onto the source from which Christianity came to them. The fact that the Gospel tells a story which is enacted among Jews and in truth treats only of Jews has facilitated such a projection. The hatred for Judaism at bottom is a hatred for Christianity, and it is not surprising that in the recent German National Socialist Revolution, this close connection of the two monotheistic religions finds such clear expression in the hostile treatment of both. Now, similar, parallel, in my view, is the situation in the world of Islam. There is the fact, the Quran itself attests, warns Muhammad toward the end of his life, 
I want to find you the passage because it is so telling. It warns the prophet. Oh, I can't find the passage. I can say it in Arabic, but then you won't understand it. So let me translate. This is this is a revelation that comes to the prophet towards the end of his life, as Arab Bedouins are coming to him to to give their fealty, swear their allegiance to him, and they claim in the Arabic that we have faith, we have come to you. And the prophet is then warned and told, tell them, no, you have only submitted, faith has not entered your heart. There's a clear distinction between submission and faith in the Quran. So when Freud refers to badly Christian Christian, this is the badly Muslim Muslims. Because the great crime in Islam was the genocide, destruction of the Prophet's family. And it was not done by some remote people. It was done by the very companions of the Prophet. The murder of his grandsons, his son-in-law, the entire family. This is the crime with which the post-prophetic Muslim history begins. This crime was of such immense proportion, just as the crucifixion of Jesus is, that the people, Muslims, they simply buried it. They wanted to forget at that time. And Islam split along the issue of the Prophet's family destruction between the small group that is called the Shia and the majority of that Muslim. And that conflict is going on right now. That's the conflict between Iran and the Shiites and the Sunnis in Pakistan, Saudi Arabia. That's the great... But this crime becomes the collective unconscious. And as Freud says, the collective unconscious then becomes a collective neurosis. And the collective neurosis then is reflected in the pathology of violence, which is what Freud is talking about, which is what we are now seeing, the pathology of violence. Um, yeah, go ahead. So the gentleman in the back. Okay, thank you, Paul. For... Okay, one second, the gentleman. Excuse me, what? The gentleman in the back? And then you, and then... Uh... Okay. Okay, so go ahead. And then, then you. I have a few points, I was telling you. Yeah. So I have some... I don't hear you, please. Okay. So it's a great talk, and um, there are a few points that I agree with and I don't agree with. So I'll start with the things that I agree with to make you happy. So uh, I agree that, uh, as what you said, uh, we were Prophet Moses, and, and as one of the greatest prophets, and, and the Prophet himself fasted the day that Moses was saved from, uh, from hell. So these are all true, and this. That's uh, that's highly um, Muslims usually uh, in the past today uh, they have a good relations with Jews. What I what I say from it, but um, the things what's missing here is that any historical text, Quran or not, is subject to interpretation, and the context of people who live influence how people understand the text, and. Um, so I won't say that 
uh, well, the scholars' understanding, Muslim scholars' understanding of the text uh, influenced hatred. Or I would say the other way around, the context that people live in, the circumstances of people live in, they actually influenced how they understood the text. It's not, it's not this way, it's the other way. Uh, to uh, just to uh, to uh, to say in some few examples, to bring the example, if you go if you go a few hundred years back, uh, the same Muslims, like the same scholars, and their teachers, teachers, and their teachers, teachers, they helped. Some of them helped uh, in in Albania or in Bosnia. How the Jews who fled the Nazis uh, occupation, uh, Nazis uh, genocide against the Jews, and help the Jews' families to escape the, the atrocities and to, towards them. So I will say it is it is there is the fault of the of the Muslim scholars that they maybe misunderstood the text or uh, they gave a, 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 a view to the Muslims of the understanding of the text that that serves the ideology, but I would say that the circumstance, the context actually influenced them in a way they understood the text in this way. Uh, so this is the first point, and uh, the second, the second, uh, and, and the second point I want to, I want to mention is that um, it's not only hatred or, uh, or uh, anti-Semitism that's that's uh, evident in the in the in the Arab Muslim world. It's also Islamophobia. Uh, just to bring you a, a personal anecdote, I was I went to a Jewish restaurant last month. And I was refused to serve to be served because just I, I went there to eat kosher, but just because because of the, because of just my, my appearance as 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 an Arab or something that I was refused to be served a meal. Uh, and it, this is not in Israel. This is in, in Miami. It's in U.S. So also just to just to give you the evidence, the context actually influenced this. This anti-Semitism and all Islamophobia in both sides. So I don't. I won't attribute this hatred to understanding of the text. I will still think that the context is different. If there is no political tension, or there is no. If if you see, for example, even like a, a last two, yesterday or two days ago, that when Paul Walker, the actor, died, and I was looking at the comments from the newspapers around the world. When you see the newspaper newspapers from the Middle East. They mention, you know, what about the death of the Palestinians? So it's so it's although these two incidents, there is no relation. But when you are in a context with, with full of death and full of full of uh, bombings and full of uh, war, people will immediately think and use whatever uh, resource they have to to, uh, to, uh, to to make a point, whether it's Quran, whether it's, whether it is it's, it's a religion. Or whether it's something else. Well, as I've said, you know, uh, the Quran doesn't read itself. It's Muslims who read the Quran. And how they understand the Quran not only reflects upon the state of their own knowledge, but it also depends upon the state of the knowledge of the heart. As the Prophet, as the Quran itself says, you know, you have only submitted, faith has not entered your heart. Uh, the question of Jews and uh, Arabs, or Jews and Muslims, you know, I'm reminded of the story uh, from uh, European history 
Uh, Clemenceau was confronted at the end of World War I by a journalist challenging him on the causes of the war and what France had done wrong that precipitated the war. And Clemenceau said, all of what you say is possibly right, but one fact remains, it was not Belgium that attacked Germany, it was Germany that ruled over Belgium. The fact of the matter remains, it is not Jews that are ruling over Islam, it's Islam or the fundamentalists and the hate mongers are, are, are ruling over the Jews. And we Muslims have to confront that. Thank you for a pleasant and surprising presentation. It certainly illuminated us regarding certain interpretations of the Quran. I regret that I'm not enough of a Quranic expert to, to discuss this further. But what I certainly can discuss, uh, first of all, one comment regarding, I think, over ostracization of Obama, Nixon, possibly Eisenhower as well. Uh, you referred, for example, to the India-Pakistan uh, wars. And of course, I suppose, uh, I, you might be referring to Iran, but probably more likely that the tension that's going on in Syria is being ignored consistently. But I put it to you that you know, this, is, this is not something that, uh, that has eluded almost any administration in, in the past 15 years. Um, we, we saw what happened in, in uh, Rwanda and in Burundi. Nobody paid attention to, to Sri Lanka. When the Himalayan cannons were going off in Sri Lanka, nobody said, not another Punjab. Meanwhile, uh, events in Angola were transpiring in many other countries and in proximity were... What's your question? I mean, this well, is not I, I, I'm 20th that. century history is not the issue. Tell me your I'm question. I'm getting to that. Yeah. So, the, the point there is, is very simple. What right do we have to ostracize these regimes? All regimes should be um, ostracized after all. Is it not, here's the question, is it not economic interest that has driven um, intervention on the part of the world powers rather than sympathy with, uh, with other countries. Uh, the, second, the second question, actually, probably more on Ali, I sent an article actually to, to, to Salim on this matter because I thought it was very, um, very interesting. You mentioned Gaddafi, but um, it was on what's going on in Yemen right now. It is actually very current with the uh, assault on the the Dar al the seminary, or madrasa, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the, the question here is, is this possibly the embodiment of the new clash? We have to, after all, we do see uh, two, two camps. You see the, the Houthas, and you see, of course, uh, the, the Wahhabis. Okay, look. Both with the same, with the same objective of reestablishing the Khalifa. Okay, look, the, the issue that I came to talk about is Muslim and Arab anti-Semitism. And the Muslims have used the sacred scripture to justify the hate mongering. Okay? And my argument is, going back to it, that they have not only misused it, but they have smeared the sacred scripture. They have smeared the Prophet's name all because of their own political ideology. That's the issue here. 
The question is not about oil and so on and so forth. We are talking, at least I am in this particular instance talking about how the Muslim hate mongers are themselves the biggest perverters of Islam, starting from wherever you want to name them. Okay, that's the issue. When Sadat went to Jerusalem, that was in fact an Islamic operation. Sadat himself spoke about it. You go and read Sadat's biography, uh, sorry, autobiography and writing and speeches. The entire approach was prepared on the grounds that this is what Islam demands of him. There was political consideration there. Every political leader, and especially in this case of Sadat, the, the largest Arab state, after having fought a war in 73, going to Jerusalem in 77, these are political matters. But the legitimacy of that move was based upon a reading of the Quran, that there is no basis of a quarrel between Jews and Muslims. In fact, the Jews are the elder brothers of Muslims. Okay? But then what happened? Sadat was killed by Muslims who said the reverse. So that is the struggle that is going on inside Islam. That's the struggle that is going on, and that's the struggle that Muslims have to confront. It is, you know, the non-Muslims, they may pay attention here, there, they have their other consideration, but the ultimate responsibility is, and if there is going to be a disaster, God forbid, then it will be precipitated by Muslim hate mongers. Nobody else is responsible, just as nobody else is responsible for the murder of the Prophet's family. Well, but that's the, I, I, I don't want to get into all what you are talking about. This is the issue of the Quran and the Prophet. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, in the passing uh, the end of the Caliphate and, and the relation with Ijtihad. I would like to, to know exactly what the relation is between. What, what? Yeah, the relation between Ijtihad and the Caliphate. I'm not quite sure what the link is. But also, uh, with that, uh, I would like to know exactly what would you want Obama to do? What would you have him do instead of what he's doing? And also, do you think that there's any uh, responsibility for Israeli policy? Does it have anything to do with um, the situation in the Middle East? <laughs> well, number one, I mean, the question of Obama was an off-the-cuff remark of mine. I mean, you know, yeah. the fact was, you know, I was pointing out that Nixon had basically shrugged the genocide. Maybe other presidents have said that this gentleman is pointing out all the others who we know. So maybe it doesn't matter to whoever is the president. And that's, that's the relevance. And I, there's nothing much more to say about Obama. The question of jihad and caliphate? Ijtihad. Oh, ijtihad. Mm -hmm. uh, ijtihad is independent reasoning, mm -hmm. the effort that is expended to understand the Quran and the sacred text. Well, this independent effort that is in the classical period by which you know, the whole corpus of Islamic law was created was brought to an end at some point in the 12th century by the orders of the ruling powers. And Ishtihad was closed, the doors of Ishtihad was closed. Among the Shiite, they have a different uh, you know, methodology. But in Sunni Islam, which is 85% of the Muslim world, the doors of Ishtihad was closed, and what was officially established was taklid, that is imitation. That is the argument of ruling based on precedence. That means no more independent reasoning, it is, it is closed. And so a Muslim today 
it wants to refer to Islamic law, which is what is the debate going on, whether it's in Afghanistan or in Sudan or in Yemen or wherever, Saudi Arabia, of course. If the Muslim wants to say that these laws are untenable in the context of the time that we live in, that argument will be pushed aside because in, in, in terms of the official argument, there is no basis of independent thinking. You only have to apply what has been already established. Okay? And that too is the massive struggle that is going on. I mentioned uh, Mahmoud Muhammad Taha, the great Sudanese scholar. He was hanged by President Nameri precisely because of these arguments. He was just a scholar. He wrote a book. He, he made the argument. He was not seeking power, but he was hanged. So these are inside the struggle that is going on, and these are very, very acute. And the consequences of these struggles, how, how it will be worked out, will have far-reaching consequences for people outside the world of Islam. It's not only the people of the world of Islam. I will just make one further point in this issue. Since 9-11, the West has been, in a sense, more and more aware at the surface level of what is happening, without any understanding of history, philosophy, culture, language. Only at the surface. You know, the, the symptom of a, of a patient, of a person who is a patient suffering from something but the diagnosis is not there. Um, <clears throat> the, the fact of the matter is, the largest number of, Muslim, of people who have died are Muslims themselves at the hands of Muslims. It is not that you know Jews are killing Muslims, or Hindus are killing Muslims, or Buddhists are killing Muslims, or Christians are killing Muslims. In fact, the Christian world, if you talk about the West as Christian world, they have saved Muslims. In Bosnia, they saved Muslims. They went into operation to save Muslims. In Kosovo, they have saved Muslims. But, but, yeah, but, but the, it, is, it is the reverse that is happening. It is the Muslims killing Muslims, Muslims attacking non-Muslims. And that is, again, the, the phenomena of what is in, boiling inside the world of Islam. If I may, I'll take a 20-second intervention as a prerogative of the chair. I find it mind-boggling that we have been able to divorce American foreign policy or Western foreign policy from the notion of human rights. And what else can Obama do? If we've learned the lessons from history, we have to do something. This is a regime in Iran that is ideologically, theologically, politically driven to exterminate another nation. And our default position, thanks to Saeed, who doesn't speak Arabic, who doesn't quote Arab sources, uh, and the sort of superficial understanding of a literary critic of the Middle East, is our default position is to criticize the victim of this hatred. We need to go deeper, as thank God Professor Osir uh, is doing. And um, we have to change the dichotomy and stop uh, deflecting from the problem. So thank you for your words. There's a question at the end. Yeah, uh, you picked up milestones there, like the First World War, 20 years later, the Second World War, and all kind of fusing each other. Uh, you, you mentioned 9-11. Well, when Richard Nixon came in there, not sorry, not uh, who came in 1980? United States. Reagan. 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 Sorry, when Reagan came in, he's the first. His first objective was to end the Cold War. That was 1980. He didn't end until 89. And then I was shocked when 9/11 happened for many reasons, and I, I felt so much empathy for all these people. But 
all of a sudden I see all the, it seems that uh, like all the institutions, all, all the corporations in the United States say, oh, we're being attacked. It's the end of the world kind of thing. And they all say, please, the government, you know, break all the rules, let us give us a chance. And of course, that was, there was a religious connotation to all of that. They sent the Saudi Arabian plane load back to back because they were in, 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 camp in America. So my question is very simple. What's, what, what's happening to the industrial uh, military complex? They always had the military complex, and they still have it to this day. But all of a sudden, they lost their industrial edge. And speaking in America, so it became a religious. I mean, you, you, you have made a comment, but I don't know what your question is, you know, I mean, and it well, takes well, away well, in a different direction. Why, why did all these big corporations like General Motors, they, they, they cried to the end of the world that they were suddenly, you know, defeated globally. They, 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 they just said, we, we need help. And of course, the government was going to give them the help. But that was showing the weakness of America and maybe the, the, the star of, of the religion. I found your analysis very interesting in the sense that it, you seem to point out the lack of morality within Islam and within the Western world as well. That the, the, the problem of Nazism was a failure of morality. And same with the current problem within Islam is a failure of morality. And um, you know, this morning uh, I was reminded that I was thinking about the Vatican, and um, my nephew who just came back from Rome, and it reminded me that Rome was once the Roman Empire, and now it's Rome, and the Vatican is this tiny, tiny thing that has absolutely no voice. So, well, very little. <laughs> very little. Um, so, really the issue is, where is the world going to find this ethical leadership, which, you know, which is what, you know, Professor Small is talking about, the issue of human rights and, and how, you know, that ethical uh, morality should be some kind of guidance, but it's, we don't know where it is. I don't know if I can answer your question, you know, but let me give you something to think about. Um, and I think Professor Salim will uh, relate to it on a greater proximity. Uh, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the abolishment of the Ottoman Empire, I mean the fact that the Ottoman Empire went to war on the side of the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians was in retrospect a disastrous decision on the part of the Ottoman ruling class. And that's retrospective, you know, we only know history in hindsight in that sense. Uh, but that's what they decided to do and they went to war and, 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 and uh, they were defeated and then the, the Khalifat was abolished and as I pointed out a void was created. A void that has not been filled. Here's the example. During the time of the Ottoman Khalifa, what is today Saudi Arabia was part of the Ottoman Empire. And within the desert of Saudi Arabia would emerge periodically groups of tribes of the most backward 
the most illiterate, the most deformed mentally people claiming the flag of Islam to reform Islam and the Ottoman Khalif would have to send troops to smash them down. And this was a recurring thing. You have all heard the name Wahhabi? Well, this was the most backward of Islam's civilizational people, cultural people, who would be rising and raising the flag and would be hunted down and shut down. With the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the void that was created, the abolishment of the Khalifa, what happened? The very backward people were brought to power with the support of the British and protected by the Americans. Not that I'm suggesting any conspiracy theory. These are intended and unintended consequences of history. So the Wahhabi Saudis were the most backward people in the Arabian Peninsula. And if you put it in the world of Islam, they were the savages of Islam. Today they're the rulers of Islam. All supported by the powers, the greatest powers on the world at that time. First it was Britain, and then it was the United States. Professor Ismail said Iran seemed to be expecting the United States to do something to Iran because they want to because they, they want to annihilate Israel. But they won't for one reason, even if they could, is because they have such experience with Iraq and Afghanistan that I don't think they ever get any approval from the American public to vote in another war. Iraq was something they were partially Do you have a question? Do you have a question? Well yes, I need to say okay. <laughs> All right, I'll bring the question. Um, do you think that uh, the Americans were partially su successful in Iraq because it wasn't just Saddam Hussein? And do you think Afghanistan had any merit at all? Yeah. So we can speak after. Well, let's That's speak to the questions of the paper. Okay. The final question is real. Um, yeah. So you spoke about the internal debate in the Muslim world and that um, you don't feel like you have a platform or other people who hold a similar position to you. Um, but I'm wondering what the reality of that debate looks like internally. Like what, what do people... Let me, I, I get it, and, and if this is the final question, can I then reflect a little broadly? Let me, let me uh, share with you then, with, with uh, all of you, my own thoughts and part of it is in my own writings on this matter. Uh, this is a comparative historical approach. Japan became a huge power towards the end of the 19th century. And then it was recognized as a major power after it defeated Russia in the war of 1905. That victory pushed Japan into an orbit of trying to become the great power in the Pacific region. It went into China, it tried to establish the great Asian prosperity sphere, but all of this it was doing within, quote unquote, the structure of a culture and a civilization that was emperor worship and militarism. Nobody was going to tell the Japanese, you are wrong, you should reform yourself. But that dynamics inevitably led to war, Pearl Harbor and war. And that dynamic ended with a disaster for the very people 
would push Japan in that direction with the atom bomb. And then from the ruin, the ashes and the shadow of that disaster, a new Japan emerged. A new Japan that is at fully at home in the modern world. It's a democracy. It embraced the United States. Douglas MacArthur stayed back and gave Japan the constitution and so on and so forth. I tell my students, Japan lost the war and yet it won the war. Look around in your university parking lot how many Hondas and Toyotas and, 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 and so on is there, okay? Same thing happened with Germany. Same thing happened with India. India crashed and Britain filled the void. As somebody from the Indian subcontinent, myself, speaking in English language, we are the world's largest democracy. We are also the second largest Muslim country. The only place in the world in modern history where Muslims have been elected president in a democratic fashion. All right? It's a constitutional form of government. I do not want to paint any picture of India in rose color, but the point is that that element of India that is fully modern or is trying to be modern and reconciled is the product of Britain. My home city, where I was born, was the capital of the British Empire before it was moved to Delhi, it's Calcutta. And there at the heart of the city lies the biggest monument it is called Victoria Memorial. It was built in the image of the Taj Mahal. All of you have seen the picture of Taj Mahal. It is a very poor copy of the Taj Mahal, so it reflects poorly on British architecture at the end of the 19th century. But that's beside the point. Victoria Memorial with a huge statue of Queen Victoria. We are the children of Queen Victoria. Does it in any way corrupt my Islam? Obviously not. In fact, we, the Muslims of India, are at home in a democracy. Okay? And some of the greatest Muslim thinkers in the 20th century happened to be Indian religious leaders, Muslim religious leaders. The name Maulana Abul Kamalam Azad stands next to Mahatma Gandhi. Okay. What I see is the Muslims of the Middle East and those who have joined them, fueled by the petrodollar, supported by the ignorance of the Western powers, have hurled themselves into a disastrous part like the Japanese and the German. And it's almost predictable that it will end in a massive disaster. But out of that ruin will come a re reawakening. Because out of that ruin will come the question, how did we Muslims, just as the Japanese and the Germans and others have said, they brought this disaster about. So that is my sense. It is a catastrophic uh, end that I see, and the Shia-Sunni war, which very few people understand, they're fixated by Iran, and what you're talking about, and if you have time, I will tell you how wrong you are. Iran is engaged in regaining a Shia position that is a millennial conflict, and the Sunnis are bent upon punishing them, because the Sunnis they look upon the Shiites with utter contempt. And this war has nothing to do with Jews, and nothing to do with America, and nothing to do with Hindus. In Pakistan, the Shias are being hunted down. Okay? 
So this is a war, and so when Saudi Arabia and Qatar are going to stand up to Iran, and Saudi Arabia has already said that it is a nuclear power country, except the bombs are located in Pakistan. We know where, they're head, where we are headed. And that's where the leadership vacuum is. The leadership vacuum that is allowing this to happen. And a disaster that is so predictable, then, you know, from which very little is to be escaped. We are back in the 1930s. People like Churchill could see the disaster coming. Thank you. Thank you. So, on that note, so thank you very much, uh, really, for your insights and for your very crucial work. Thank you for sharing it with us. Have a nice holiday, and we'll see you in January. I hope you're Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.